0: from WSL Pure, this is One Ocean. Hey everyone, today among other things, we'll learn how and why baby fish are eating microplastics, what life forms are hiding out in ocean surface slicks, and what's most affecting the health of our coral reefs. That's a lot to cover all in one conversation, but Our friend, Jameson Gove, who is a research oceanographer with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA for short, is the perfect person to discuss all this with. Jamie has a PhD in this stuff. He's got a ton of field experience under his belt. And in the past year, his work was featured in National Geographic with some of the most stunning imagery of the microplastics surrounding larval fish. Little baby fish, tons of plastic, not good. He's also just a great guy and a great surfer. And a fun story, I actually met Jamie on my very first couple days on the job. I was on a work trip to Hawaii, and I bumped into him while surfing with a buddy. We kept in touch over email, and as he published more and more research, I knew I had to get him on the podcast and just learn more from him. So I'm really happy to have him here today to share his knowledge with us. Without further ado, here's Jamie Gove. So here here we are I'm with Dr. Jameson Gove. Yes. And um, you're an oceanographer, but I feel like that's a pretty broad... Title, and you know, really, I, I don't like to bucket people into just your title. So, how would you define yourself? You know, who, who are you, and you know, what are you doing here on this planet?
1: <laughs> uh, way to start broad and, and um, uh, some important questions out of the gate. Uh, oceanographer is a pretty general term. You know, people study open ocean, people study the Arctic, and in my case, mostly I've focused on coral reefs. Uh, so, trying to understand how ocean processes like waves, temperature, currents, so on and so forth influence. Coral reef health. Mostly thinking about coral community structure, so different types of corals, different types of algae, how they live, where they live, and uh, thinking about around islands and between islands across the Pacific. So I'm kind of more of a biophysical oceanographer, where I look at how ocean the ocean conditions dictate marine food webs and coral reefs in particular.
0: That seems like a pretty linchpin area of study right now, in particular. Like, pretty core I I mean not that there's we should be ranking science as this is more important than other science but you know understanding our world and those those changes and how the ocean because the ocean is changing so rapidly right now and then what is that going to mean for the rest of those what are those cascading effects it feels like that is just urgent urgent science that we need to understand as soon as possible
1: yeah no I mean absolutely a a lot of climate change manifests itself in just um, subtle changes in current conditions right uh, whether subtle changes through time or actually more acute really extreme changes like say uh, marine heat wave where ocean temperatures are, are you know quite a few degrees um, above average for an extended period of time so uh, like i said it's it's when i started my career uh, in ocean science I'd, i wasn't really intending to focus on climate change but uh, climate change is just is just now um, just a fundamental aspect to the research that we do
0: you kind of can't avoid it, right? You know, it's just there and it's affecting everything. So it's whether you're, whatever you're working on, it's going to affect that science in some way, I feel
1: like. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, historically, we've really put things into two categories, uh, natural fluctuations in the environment and human activities. And so a big part of my career, I was uh, studying islands, remote islands without people. So the remote northwestern Hawaiian Islands are Papahānaumokuākea, There's some islands on the equator. The U.S. actually owns quite a few islands throughout the Pacific, largely vestiges of World War II. Um, and actually, even before that, we used to, um, to uh, go down to certain islands and mine for bird guano, uh, basically for phosphorus and, and nitrogen for fertilizer. So... <laughs> To make long story short, the U.S. just owns uh, or, or has territories um, throughout the Pacific. And so working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, uh, we're actually responsible for doing baseline studies and monitoring these reefs throughout the Pacific. And so, you know, throughout um, my 20s and into my 30s, I was doing a lot of scuba diving in these remote areas, trying to basically assess what these reefs were like and... and um, how they were changing and, and so on and so forth. And what I noticed early on is that reefs in different geographies uh, looked very different. The corals looked different. The amount of coral looked different. Um, the type of fish were obviously different. But, but I think uh, it, it was sort of a firsthand experiential education in that different um, variations in the physical environment really dictated what reef ecosystems look like. And then you would come to a place like, say, Oahu or some other really heavily populated island, and the reef would look entirely different, uh, especially compared to what we would expect based on the natural environmental conditions. and so if if historically, if we would study uh, these more remote islands as a natural laboratory, we could kind of really understand how the physical mi- environment uh, dictates and structures coral reef ecosystems. And if we took that knowledge, took that, that model and and applied it to say a place like Oahu, where where things deviate from that, we can know that it's likely human activities that are, that are one that are driving those changes in, in core reef health. And so what's, what's a little bit different now is that even in remote islands, climate change is actually fundamentally influencing uh, ecosystems. So this sort of natural laboratory is now an interesting um, experiment, so to speak, to see how climate change is even influencing some of the most remote ecosystems on the planet.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, we've talked a lot about the concept of shifting baselines with some of our other guests, and um, you know, you're touching on that point of you know, you you had this place where you could get a baseline, but now that baseline is going to be continually changing and changing really rapidly. So now it it, it inhibits your ability to um, understand that place and then use that data to understand our places where we exist yeah but a fair summary
1: absolutely uh shift shifting baseline definitely i mean i think you know that's there's there's all sorts of research about how you know people's perceptions of what ecosystems used to be and should be it, it definitely shifts with generations and and certainly that's a big part of you know we we don't know what ecosystems look like at least coral reefs anyways um you know hundreds of years ago right so we're we're forced to to look at remote islands and and say that these are likely what ecosystems um, look like in the absence of local human impacts but now there's global climate change happening right and so what what it does for us uh, in terms of uh, our research and our science it, it allows us to look at the impacts of climate change so for example uh, really warm ocean temperatures which will drive coral bleaching uh, which you know we can dig into in, in this conversation if you want to but uh, you know, we can look at that in a remote island, and then look at, at an island like Oahu, and you can we can try to understand how e- local human activities uh, will compromise or undermine the resilience of reefs to climate impacts. So we can compare those remote and local, and and so it still provides um, a really an important aspect of our research to 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 compare uh, what and how humans are are disrupting or influencing um, ecosystem processes. But nevertheless, it's, uh, it, you're, you're right, it's, it, climate change and its impacts are, are, are pervasive and prevalent in, in all aspects of what we do.
0: Yeah, so I, I definitely want to dig into the coral stuff because you've been doing a lot of work on that in, in this past year. Um, and it's super relevant just to <laughs> our community of ocean lovers and surfers. And um, So if you had to say, what, is a, what does a healthy coral reef ecosystem look like? And what is a unhealthy human impacted reef ecosystem look like? Right. You know, what, what are those few things? And maybe let's let's use Oahu as, as the example. Um, you know, what's going on here that's impacting the reef? Because I know you've done some interesting stuff with runoff from the wild pigs and the the, the, the uh, soil that washes down the river and then affects that local reef ecosystem. So maybe you can give us a couple examples that are relevant here or that are common to um, many areas. Right beyond uh, the, beyond climate change itself sure. which is just affecting all reefs everywhere with warming waters and the bleaching itself so um the, what are those other impacts i guess is what i'm getting at
1: yeah there's a lot to unpack there so if i go on some <laughs> random tangent or down some rabbit hole feel free to bring me back and back to what you actually want to this get a it podcast at. it's long form <laughs> go <laughs> right. go for it we have an hour to, to get through this uh so i think your first first opening part of that was um you know juxtapose uh what a what a nice healthy reef ecosystem looks like. Yeah, at a there's high level. Sort of, yeah. So, you know, when I visual and and of course, um, different geographies uh, look differently just because there's different species and and so on and so forth, right? Um, but when I think of a, a healthy reef ecosystem, I, I see lots of lo- lots of coral cover. So thinking about in the ballpark of at least 30, 40, 50, and upwards of 80 percent um coral. Uh, everywhere you look. So 80% of what you see is, is, is dominated by live coral. And, and there's lots of different shapes and lots of different colors. And so some shapes are you know, more mounding and encrusting and low-lying and other ones are more you know, um, structurally complex is what we would say. So there's lots of holes and other things. The branching sort of Branching, corals. so on and so yeah. forth, yeah. And, and the reason why that structural complexity um, is important in, in a healthy reef ecosystem is, what is it allows for fish to basically hide from predation. So the more structurally complex a reef is, it provides more habitat for all sorts of different types of fish.
0: So really, like at the physics level, it's surface area, the more surface area pockets and kind of exposed pieces of the reef, the more habitat for fish, the more fish, the healthier the whole ecosystem
1: is. Exactly. Um, And then also, as part of a reef ecosystem, it's not just corals. Uh, Crustose coralline algae is actually, uh, it, while an algae, it's, it it is encrusting and it it is calcifying and it provides sort of the glue of of this reef ecosystem. It's it it, it, it um it's this bright, usually bright pink, and uh, and it's also CCA is is what we tend to call it. But crustus corn algae is um is really fundamental for coral reef to settle. So a a new coral. Larvae will come down, and it can really only settle and grow on existing crustose So it's a it's a part of the ecosystem as well. And there is a healthy amount of um, of what you know tends to be negative, but fleshiology. You know, lots of parrotfish and other things eat fleshiology. So there has to be some fleshiology for food source for those fishes. But also, what is a I think a hallmark uh, characteristic in a lot of remote ecosystems is just the amount of fish biomass. There is just fish everywhere and they're big and huge schools of them, whether that's, you know, especially up in the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, there's just giant schools of a hundred pound plus alua and, wow. you know, schools of 80, 90, 150, and then just lots of sharks. Sharks are definitely um, something I would say is, is really a, a part of, of remote ecosystems. Uh, so you now sort of describing what the opposite of that would be is you know you look out and you kind of see mostly flat uh, maybe a couple of small little coral you know nubbins here and there but mostly mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's really a pavement like substrate with with sort of algae uh slowly moving back and forth as as you know the waves go overhead very little fish um just no color too it's almost like everything is just kind of like murky green brown color yeah and those are those are clearly the extremes of the spectrum uh, yeah for know, sure you know it's not like everywhere around uh i don't want to keep picking on oahu but it's not like everyone oahu is, is like that by any means but but a heavily impacted heavily degraded reef has very little structure is pretty flat very little fish um and so
0: i mean images that i've seen of, of reefs like that feel like a graveyard
1: oh absolutely
0: not to get too dark but <laughs> they just feel yeah. like Oh, there was once life here and now it's all gone. It's it's like the darker scenes of finding Nemo or something, you know. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> whereas like the healthy reef ecosystem that Nemo's from is this beautiful, wonderful place.
1: Yeah. Um, lots you know, of color. You know, and sometimes you'll see you'll still see lots of old dead coral. So some of the structure is still is still there in some of these places, but but um you know, and uh, basically after a coral dies, it, while the structure will stay there for some time, it slowly also degrades.
0: Yeah. So now what are those causes? What are those things? What are the top few things that, uh, you know, in this local um, ecosystem are, are affecting the reef, you know, beyond. So we're, we're saying, okay, climate change is happening everywhere, warming ocean, bleaching, but um, runoff, for example, or sunscreen. Do you classify that as one of the bigger problems? Um, fishing and, and those impacts, like what are those top three to five things that are affecting our local reefs? here, say in Hawaii, and then maybe are more broadly applicable that are affecting sure. all
1: reefs. Yeah. And I think I've used this term a couple of times, but I'll refer to these things as local human impacts or local human activities. And that just is really the things that are, you know, we are doing on a day to day that, that, are, that is directly impacting the reef, you know, within the, our local geography within a couple of miles or, or whatever from, from, um, uh, societal infrastructure or, or what have you. Uh, I would say that you know the top. There's really top three. I'd say that are most important. Uh, wastewater is is a huge issue. It's a huge issue in a, in a lot of uh, developing countries in particular. But but even in, um, in the Hawaiian Islands, uh, waste wastewater pollution is is incredibly detrimental to coral reef health. And what I mean by that, and I, I don't know how many how how common knowledge this is, but a large portion of the Hawaiian Islands use cesspools as their primary um, way to deal with with wastewater and a cesspool you know i, I i'm sure that you know but it, it's really just a hole in the ground right and so all of our wastewater goes in that hole and depending on uh, the proximity of your house to the ocean uh, a lot of that leaches out into the environment so while the solids may stay in the cesspool um, all of the nutrients all of the other all of the other um, bacteria and so on and so forth will will basically hit the groundwater and then the groundwater is the delivery system to, to the um, nearshore environment. So a place like, say, the Big Island, which is a fairly new island, it's very porous, lots of lava, uh, that connectivity between the cesspool and the groundwater and then the groundwater to the, the ocean is, is um, really quite fluid. So there was actually a study where they they'd put a bunch of dye, um, biodegradable dye tracer in a bunch of cesspools and septic tanks and so on and so forth, uh, in this community, and in one particular case, within about six hours, that die hit hit the reef. And in that six case, hours,
0: six hours. Yeah. Hang on. So okay. So in the cesspool. Science, science are these NOAA scientists or just uh, this is
1: actually scientists from uh the university of hawaii at um hilo
0: so a biodegradable dye in the cesspool and then in six hours that hit the
1: wreath yeah and that and that was a, a uh interesting unique case where the it was actually a septic tank but the septic tank was cracked okay um so but i think uh the total the the range in time was six hours to about ten days. So even ten days is still
0: that's still fast,
1: super fast. And so what we would say a there lot probably
0: of, a lot of nutrient loading and there's there's a lot of nutrients in there still when it's that fast. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's not filtering out the way it's supposed to.
1: No, uh-uh. you would. Um, the way that the process is supposed to work is that a bacteria will come in and break down all the solids and 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 deal with the nutrients and so on and so forth. But in, but for this example, uh, basically those nutrients are just are hitting hitting the near shore. And, and I guess we should talk about why nutrients are bad.
0: So, Well, hang on. I also want to know the range. How far is the range? Uh, you, so you, you have the time range, but how far does it go? So if, from a given cesspool, is this, is this reaching? Is this affecting just that near shore reef or does that spread out?
1: Oh, yeah. Good question. It, it uh, probably depends on what we would call the residence time. So how long water sticks around in a particular geography. And that really changes on day-to-day and, and season-to-season. So, in the winter when there's lots of waves, you know, that, those nutrients would would basically be, uh, you know, they would be taken away pretty quickly. Uh, but most of the time, and in this particular case, uh, off the Big Island, and this is West Hawaii specifically, um, there's just not a lot of waves. It's a pretty stagnant environment, you know, it's yeah. just tidal currents and so on and so forth. So, uh, it has huge impacts on on that local reef. Wow,
0: okay, sorry, I cut you off. I just was curious on the the, the range, what were you saying?
1: Well, I was just gonna say, like, I, I think most people, you know, think of nutrients, we maybe think of fertilizer and we you know, obviously fertilizer is really important for agricultural production and so on and so forth. In, in this case, you know, reefs have, a, have really amazing checks and balances in a, in a natural system. And, and so what we're doing is we're basically throwing off those checks and balances. By by loading up nutrients in a particular location, you there are only certain species that can take up those nutrients super and they and they grow quite fast and and those tend to be algae. And so algae will will really respond. These are weedy species. These are the weeds that are in your yard that grow, you know, within days <laughs> of you mowing your lawn, right? Like yeah. so it's the same on the reef. There are weedy species that that grow super fast and and they'll capitalize on those nutrients. And um and so what they can do is they can overgrow corals. So they can outcompete and overgrow corals because they have this competitive advantage because of the excess nutrients, right? While corals need nutrients, they just can't take it up and they don't grow nearly as fast as something like an algae. And then, uh, so that's the wastewater um, part. And then I guess flipping um, to uh, another issue, which is overfishing. And so there are a number of fish on a reef that eat algae. And so they put that that algal growth in check. Um, but the problem is, is we tend to fish the fish that eat the algae. So parrotfish is a good example that eat some algae and, and there's lots of other fish. And so I, um, what we're doing essentially is, is sort of fertilizing our lawn, but then throwing away the lawnmowers and still expecting, <laughs> still expecting our lawn to look pristine. And
0: that's a, that's a really good analogy. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we're eating the lawnmowers. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's, so a lot of these, um, these issues, these, these impacts do not, they don't, um, they don't work in isolation. So they're, they're, they're oft, often synergistic in terms of their impacts on the reef itself. Right. So waste management, waste management issues and, and overfishing issues, um, combine to, to sort of, again, be this either additive or synergistic impact on reefs that, that is, is pretty detrimental.
0: Wow. Anything else?
1: Uh, so yeah, I talked about, um,
0: on the impacts.
1: Uh, yeah. So we talked about waste water, waste water management, uh, fishing, uh, in certain areas, uh, sedimentation and other types of runoff sedimentation is really just basically soil getting into the environment. And so there are various ways in which excess soil can accumulate on land. And then obviously a big rain event will come in and, and transport all that soil to the, to the water. And, why that's impactful is because reefs uh, are photosynthetic. Well, corals are photosynthetic animals and which sounds and is somewhat contradictory. Um, <laughs> well, cause
0: they're a plant and animal yeah, together.
1: Yeah. They corals live in a symbiotic relationship with a single celled algae called zooxanthellae and the zooxanthellae. These are microscopic things. Millions of them live in the tissue in corals and, they provide corals their color. Actually, these are, these are the, these are the um, blues and greens and, and purples that you see underwater, right? And so corals really have evolved to to rely on those algae. And those algae photosynthesize and the byproducts of their photosynthesis, which is just really sugar, is what corals use as their primary food source. And so that relationship is really critical for their survival. So if, in this case, we we're talking about sedimentation, if there's a ton of soil that is either in the water suspended or it settles out on top of the coral. It will inhibit the ability for those algae to photo- photosynthesize and therefore provide the food to the coral.
0: Right. So that's kind of what was happening with the wild pigs, right?
1: Oh, right. So you're referring to uh, we did this this video like Kyle with Tierman. Kyle Tierman, yeah. yeah, which is pretty funny. Running around a field trying to trying to hunt pigs and having a cameraman <laughs> running around. Uh, it, uh, yeah. So pigs. Um, the way that they feed they, they basically stick their nose into the, in and turn over soil trying to find w- whatever they're trying to eat whether it's roots or worms or whatever and so and you can see i think anywhere hiking around here specifically you'll you'll see these just large stretches where the soil is just all turned over you know and uh and so what they've done is is unpacked the soil and so as soon as it rains all that comes down the watershed and comes out so they are Incredibly invasive um, and and are very actually detrimental in where they where they are
0: Yeah I mean the images from that video make it really clear when you see all that sediment covering a whole area of a what looks like a bay And of course no light is getting through to a reef there.
1: Yeah No, definitely and that, not
0: and that's just like one example of the way that that can happen Another one that I heard of a while ago was I think it was in Papua New Guinea um, loggers were coming in to log the rainforest and the logging um, essentially uproots all these trees and then you have all the soil so then when it rains it just washes all out and just completely kills these reefs which otherwise are really pristine and so it's a pretty gnarly situation um, and i believe wild ark is a group that was doing some work to try to protect that area uh, to prevent that from happening because if you can prevent it then hopefully you can keep that reef intact and so it's just a, it's just a great example of you know how intricately our ecosystem is tuned, right? I mean, one effect on land, we think, oh, what's the big deal? It's a pig on land. Isn't that a natural thing? And it's like, well, is that species supposed to be here in the first place? <laughs> which in this case, no, right? Yeah, are, no, they are. They're not. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, you know, then now that impact is affecting that whole reef ecosystem, which is really unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, land-sea connections are are really important for thinking and, and studying, in this case, quarries. I mean, understanding... What we would call land-based sources of pollution are, are really a um a big driver for coral reef ecosystem health.
0: Are are there marine sources of pollution? Yeah, aren't <laughs> isn't all pollution land-based? I always find it funny when we say like most plastic pollution comes from land. It's like well, it all comes from land at some point. It's just whether it left a ship or it came off the coastline. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I, that, sorry, I, I don't know. I'm, that is
1: a good point. Uh, yeah, I would say you know most most of the pollution that would be impacting. Um, marine ecosystems is, is certainly land-based I, that that's not all the case there's obviously you know ships and and fuel um being either spilt overboard or, or whatever you know there's there's certainly other marine-based um pollutions but I, I think in this case if we're talking about core reefs and we're talking about nearshore ecosystems it's largely based on what's from land um and your original question asked what are some of the other uh important factors influencing reef ecosystem health and you mentioned sunscreen and I think sunscreen is...
0: Yeah, I'm curious like how highly that rates because I know that it gets a lot of attention from consumers and there's a lot of movements of use reef safe sunscreen and I'm generally on board. Sure, we should be using better, more natural materials. But is that something people should be really concerned about or no?
1: Yeah, um, I, the answer is uh, I do think people should be concerned about and and I think that um, I look at sunscreen as sort of this... Uh, gateway drug to caring about reef ecosystems you know i was really surprised how the sunscreen um the the, well really that people recognize that sunscreen could potentially impact reefs and then very quickly here in hawaii it you know it was passed in the legislature that we were going to ban you know this particular compound that's in sunscreens and so cool and uh, it was just amazing to me because there was not a lot of scientific evidence to to back it up there was there was Really, just a, a couple of papers. One really important that basically showed that, um, you know, those those specific compounds in, in sunscreen would inf- would disrupt reproduction in corals, as well as um, basically cause coral development to to impede. And and, and there's a couple of other issues too. Um, but I, I think that even the scientific community was a little caught off guard because I don't think we fully understood. The, if you scaled up to, say, an entire island or the, say, the Hwa- the Hawaiians in particular, like, you know, I don't know that we really fully uh, could quantify the effects of sunscreen on that. I think my, you know, based on the evidence I've seen and, you know, my scientific opinion is that the, in, spe- in certain areas, like Hanama Bay or certain areas where there is just a ton of people in the water all day, every day, and uh, the... You know the residence time is, or or the you know how the flushing rates or how long the water is is there, um, you know if the water's really not being flushed regularly and there's a lot of people, it's it's certainly a big issue there. Yeah. Um, you know more remote areas where there's not people getting in the water nah, you know sunscreen's not affecting those reefs, for example. Yeah,
0: but it's also like why not just use the better alternative? Well, the, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day. That too. Like, yeah.
1: No, absolutely. And I and I'm and I'm all for it. Like yeah. you know, I think it's I think it's it has basically put the impacts of the things that we do even as even you know subtle as putting on sunscreen um and thinking about what it means for for marine ecosystem health and i think that's a huge uh huge win really
0: so another good gateway drug (laughs) so to speak in ocean conservation are single use plastics right um the straw movement the cutlery movement, all that, um, you know, and again, Hawaii uh, leading the way with Bill 40, which is super exciting that that passed. Um, so impressive and so, such great work done by so many groups in the community here on, on the island. Um, but, you know, the straw movement is similarly like, that's not the biggest problem in the ocean, but it has resonated with lots of people and it makes them think about their day-to-day use of single-use plastics. But the, the broader plastic issue is massive and you've done some research on this as well which is really really cool um the imagery that was in national geographic right yeah i mean it's it's incredible um so maybe you want to talk about that a little bit
1: yeah the um the imagery has been striking for sure uh and and just to take a step back the the fact that you know uh oahu just just banned selling used plastics was a huge huge deal a lot of people um sustainable coastlines a lot of other organizations put a lot of effort into that and you know they deserve you know as well as the legislatures that actually voted on it um deserve to be recognized because it, it is a big deal for sure
0: 100 so i mean surf rider oahu surf rider generally was supporting um Kukua, hawaii i think there's like a zero waste oahu group um sustainable coastlines of course and you know you saw the way the movement just Exploded, And um, it was really cool to see how many people were still there at the hearing late at night waiting for the vote to come through and then celebrating when it finally happened. You know, that community really deserves a round of applause from the global community because we need these examples to then say, wow, all right, well, they did it in Hawaii. Why can't we do it in our community, right? And that kind of domino effect. And so we want to see more of that. So yeah, huge shout out to all those people.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Um, but, you know, getting back to the, the sort of recent research that you're referring to. So we... We, um, and, and the sort of gateway, the gateway drug of, of plastics <laughs> into, into, you know, thinking about plastic pollution in general. Uh, yeah, you know, plastic straws are probably pretty minimal compared to, you know, many of the other plastics that are getting into the, into the waterways and so on and so forth. And it's, and it's impact on marine life. Um, but you know, if it's getting people to think about it, uh, the same way that re-sunscreen does and, and makes, you know, they're making changes based on that, then, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, so we, uh, recently published, uh, an article looking at how, uh, larval fish are ingesting marine plastics. Larval
0: fish being baby fish.
1: Yeah. So larval fish are, are fish in their first, you know, zero to maybe 15, 30 days of life. And so, so, so
0: sub five millimeter kind of like microscopic.
1: We're probably going to take a little deep dive into to refish ecology or fish ecology 101 real fast, and then slowly okay. and slowly uh, zoom back. I'm um, ready for the lesson. Okay. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it is important. So most fish, uh, you know, they 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 spawn and they you know sperm eggs eggs come together, obviously and form a fertilized egg. And, <laughs> and those, the the birds and the bees. The birds talk. and the bees. Yeah. <laughs> and and those eggs are are mostly buoyant. So most most fish end up having buoyant eggs. And so even if they're living in a thousand meters of water uh a lot of fish have buoyant eggs and so they'll come to the surface and those eggs uh hatch for lack of a better word and so and a and a larval fish pops out and they're incredibly small they all like they are about maybe a millimeter Mm -hmm. um super small but they grow quite quickly and they're they're at the surface they're wandering around trying to basically eat and feed and grow as fast as they can until they reach some some size, some age. And it's, you know, like I said, it depends on the species. It could be a couple of weeks or it could be a couple of months. And typically they're in the ballpark of 10, 20, 30, um, millimeters. And I wish I actually had something that I could probably bring up that would be, um, comparable size, but, uh, I mean, my, you
0: know, my pinky nail or, you know, maybe the first kind of tarsal metatarsal. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that, I don't know. now we need a human physiology lesson
0: i never took anatomy i don't even know
1: <laughs> so i know that head of a uh, eraser of a pencil i think is like five or six uh, there you go millimeters for example
0: what and are pencils do we use pencils anymore <laughs> that's a good point
1: we're terrible at this uh, yeah. the
0: lawnmower analogy was really good but anyway
1: okay <laughs> so going downhill we'll find my, another one all right back comparisons
0: so so baby fish
1: yeah and so and these fish, like I said, once they get big enough or whatever, they'll, they'll go back to the reef or they'll go back to the deep ocean or they'll go back to offshore. And, um, and so that's, that's what a laurel fish is. It's, it is basically, it's a baby fish, right? And uh, that part of their life, um, it, 99.9% of, of fish don't make it. They, most, most of them die. Most of the eggs don't either hatch or something eats the eggs. And then once they are hatched, most of, those, most of those guys die immediately. Um, they can't find food. They're in the wrong place. Something eats them, whatever. And so um, surprisingly, very few fish actually make it. Obviously enough make it so that there's plenty of fish, you know, in, in, in the sea, so to speak. But, um, but yeah, so what we were doing, our original part of our research was there's, there's just not a lot known about that part of a fish's life cycle, it, the larval fish stage, where they go, what they're doing who they're hanging out with and and what they're feeding on. Um, we know some of those aspects, but we really don't, it's it's kind of a black box, which is surprising because if you think about uh, the survivorship of those fish, that really determines the future populations of adult fish, right? Uh, as well as just all, all aspects of the marine food web really rely on the survivorship and the productivity of um, larval fish and uh i mean to to jump to the um to jump to the the point of all this is that what we found when we were doing our research is that larval fish are surrounded by and ingesting plastics at their most vulnerable life history stage and uh when we started the work plastics was not the focus of the research at all
0: when when was the start of the work
1: uh, we started doing our first surveys in 2016, so okay. we did, we did um, summertime surveys a couple of, couple of weeks over on the Big Island, 2016, 17, and 18.
0: And you were just trying to understand better the larval fish stage, what's going on there, what why do they survive or not, et cetera.
1: Yeah, there had been some papers um, back in the 80s and, and early 90s um, identifying some of these small-scale ocean processes that might uh, contribute to larval fish survivorship, and so but no one had really gone out and done a bunch of sampling to, to try and figure out where it, or what is the nursery habitat, you know, where, what are the larval fish nurseries in, in, in the near shore ocean. And so we were trying to determine that. And, and that's, and you know, like I said, most of our focus was going to be on larval fish and figuring out what food is there and, and what their concentrations were and what the diversity of fish were. And, and then just over and over in every single sample we took, we kept finding plastics. And I don't think I was, I wasn't naive enough to, to, to think that there wasn't going to be plastics, but it was just such an overwhelmingly um, dominant part of our, our samples that uh, it it was unavoidable. It, you know, it really sort of, a lot of our, our some of our research really diverged into, into focusing on that part of it.
0: So with the research, are you, are you doing a trawl with like a, a mesh net to collect some of the larval fish? Or when you say you're finding plastic in the sample, are you finding it? in the surrounding water, or are you finding it in the fish
1: themselves? Good question, uh, both. So if, <laughs> Great. if you- Great, <laughs> it's everywhere. It's, <laughs> I was it, afraid of that answer. <laughs> yeah, we were focusing on these things that we call surface slicks. And if you look out on the open ocean and you see these sort of narrow meandering ribbon-like features on the surface that actually look slick compared to the surrounding water uh, these are natural ocean processes, and the reason why they look so
0: it's not like oil or something from a boat. It's-
1: no, it's actually they're it's, um, they look slick because uh, the surface ocean is actually converging in them, which means is there's there's a really subtle, slow surface current that that brings things together in that slick. And so what it does is it, it concentrates food at the base of the food chain, so phytoplankton and zooplankton. Phytoplankton can secrete different biological material that are called surfactants, which is a term called uh, surface active material or agent. And what that does is fundamentally uh, change this surface tension of water. So it, it looks slick because of these, these biological um, uh, lipids and, and other sort of oils that they're secreting. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So the physics brings it together, but it's the biology that, that really changes um, changes the look of, of, of the surface ocean. And, and surfactants are, are things that are in like shampoos and, 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 you know, we have synthetic like surfactants or whatever. Yeah. Right? Cause like. that allows like you to wash your hair and allows the soap to actually get to your hair and so on right. and so forth. So, so, it fundamentally changes the the surface tension. So it l- looks like, cause it dampens uh, wind and wave ripple formation. And so these things are all over the ocean. I think if, you know, if anybody flown into coastal California or even here, um, you know, you'll you'll look down as right before you land, you'll you'll see a bunch of them. Yeah,
0: I mean, I'm just thinking of how many times in my life I've seen that exact thing and not ever thought. Any, I'm just like, oh, it's just current, something or other happening. You yeah, know? I mean, I've flown over plenty of oceans, I've sailed enough, I've seen this
1: exactly, but I didn't
0: know that that that's what it was. Is that it was the phytoplankton, these microscopic organisms secreting. surfactant wow okay
1: yeah it's a physical mechanism bringing together basically a a bunch of floating biological material so
0: it's its own little ecosystem then
1: absolutely and so that's what we were doing is we were studying that little little small little ecosystem and what we would take a a net and basically tow it through the surface slick uh for about 500 meters um, which took maybe eight eight to ten minutes going pretty slow like two knots and then we would do the same sample just outside of the slick nearby so we could have a control, compare what's in the slick versus what's out of the slick. And mm-hmm. we did that a hundred times um, over the course of those three years. And, uh, and then we basically counted everything that was in the slick in the samples and then counted everything that was out. And what we found is there was just a lot more phytoplankton, a lot more zooplankton, and then over eight times more larval fish in these slicks. And not wow. only were there more larval fish, but there were bigger and they were more well-developed, which implies that they're really benefiting from the increased food that's in these slicks. And, uh, there was also just a crazy amount of diversity. So, uh, you know, in summary, we, we really sort of were on the fact that these things are larval fish nurseries that, um, that, you know, a lot of larval fish are, are trying to find these things and, and, and stay in these, these surface ocean features so that they can eat and, and, uh, you know, get strong before they can go back to a reef or go back to an offshore, you know, we found mahi, we found swordfish. Uh, we found, you know, a, like I said, a bunch of goatfish, a bunch of different types of fish and a, quick side note, the a, a baby swordfish is probably one of the cutest things I've ever seen in my really? life. It is, it is so, it is really cool looking. It's, you know, th- think about like less than smaller than your pinky, but right. fully developed. It has a giant, you know, it has a bill, so you know it has the you know it has the dorsal fin that that can come up and uh and you know we caught one and it was still alive actually and and we put it in a tank and tried to keep it alive as we as long as we could but everyone on we happened to be on a ship and everyone on the ship from the captain to the engineers usually engineers don't care about anything that we're doing (laughs) i mean everybody just came down engineers get such a bad rap i mean (laughs) yeah i mean they're obviously important to keep our ship running but um but, yeah, they don't typically care about the science that we're doing. And, uh, you know, everyone came down to look at this, like, small little small Wow. Little, yeah. that's. Small, a, I mean, they,
0: they are kind of unicorns. Like, <laughs> 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 you know, there, there are very few of them. Yeah. Slash, like, it's amazing that they actually are even a real thing, whereas, you know, unicorns aren't whatever. But um, it's so funny because last night I had dinner, dinner with uh, Ethan Estes. Um, who we worked with a bunch, and we were talking about swordfish and different fisheries and tuna, because he's done tuna research, and um, we were talking about how you shouldn't eat swordfish and the different methods to catch it, but he did say that they are the most magnificent fish he's ever seen in, in the ocean. And I've, I've been lucky to see a wild uh, swordfish once on oh, a wow. sail. Um, I sailed from the Caribbean up to Massachusetts, uh, to, trying to bring a friend's boat back up. And you know, we're miles offshore, crew of four people, 43 foot little boat. And one morning I'm at the helm, and you know my crew crewmate uh, on watch is asleep everyone else is asleep down below it's early 5 a.m or something and we're cruising along and all of a sudden I hear this like (laughs) like some kind of weird noise that shouldn't be happening and I'm kind of freaking out because it's only a couple days into the sail and I look back off the stern and there's this big 10 foot black-ish figure and it was the swordfish going after our um, we had a little uh, hydroelectric um, motor basically and it it was attacking it it full on with, with its bill basically was just going whack whack trying to hit the thing and it did it a couple of times realized it wasn't food and then took off and I just sat there stunned and later on i was like guys guys they're like no way whatever and then when we pulled up the motor because it was a plastic uh propeller it was all chewed up <laughs> it was a mess oh that's but, a
1: great story yeah. yeah i've i've um i know a couple of people that have been diving and seen seen them in in the water but i've, I've never seen them i've never done any really? sort of blue water diving like that yeah anything. yeah
0: so anyway so that back to really you, cool back to so swordfish are rad and swordfish uh,
1: are rad um yeah. And, uh, I think where I was at was, you know, we, we basically just found that there are a lot more larval fish in these things. And and so what, you know, what we think is happening is there because there's so much more food and food is super important at this part of their life history that they're targeting these, these ocean features to, to feed and develop and, and until they're ready to, to move on. Um, and because, uh, the, the underlying physical mechanism that drives the formation of these surface slicks, is, is, is basically bringing, uh, concentrating things on the surface ocean. It's also concentrating really anything that's passively floating and buoyant. And so a lot of plastics are, are, are buoyant. And, and so lots of small pieces of plastics are, are basically are congregating and aggregating in these surface slicks. And, and, uh, and yeah, so every sample we've, we found there was, there was, you know, just a a ton of small pieces of plastic and, and small being like a vast majority were five millimeters or less. Too. Yeah.
0: So microplastics technical definition is five millimeters or less. Above that is macroplastic. Um, I'm curious, what was the percentage found in the fish? Yeah. I, I assume you're doing a biopsy of as many as you can. Yeah. Or some yeah. representative sample.
1: Turns out trying to dissect something that's about 10 millimeters <laughs> is extremely difficult. And then trying to find what's in their gut is even, is even harder. Yeah. So we manually dissected um about 658 fish about Uh, that's
0: a pretty exact number
1: (laughs) that's true uh yeah and you would
0: remember that number because dissecting that many fish is not that fun so
1: 658 exactly um and we tried to you know just to to um to be able to compare different species we you know we we did well we did nine different species and we did um all about the same size range and we found, in total, we found 42 had ingested pieces of plastic. And so, but we, what we did find is that there was over a two-fold increase in the larval fish that ingested plastics that were in slicks compared to out. So Interesting. Yeah. And so 42 doesn't sound like a lot, um, but I think it's important to contextualize this number with the fact that just because we, um, well, I guess what I should say is it's possible that we don't let me take start this over. We don't really know the impacts of plastic ingestion by larval fish, so it's possible that they eat a piece of plastic and die immediately. So it's possible there's a large proportion of fish that are ingesting plastics that are just that were gone and we miss them, right? right. Um, so we kind of think it's a conservative estimate, but it's also you know we we counted in over twelve thousand fish, but we were only able to dissect six hundred you know a little over six hundred fifty. Right. So I think. Th- yeah, I think our results are, are somewhat preliminary in the sense that it, I think that the issue is probably much bigger than, than you know, I think we're just scratching the surface because I think what we're trying to do is develop methods so that we can stick a bunch of fish in a jar and basically dissolve them and then just leave the plastics behind. Yeah. turns out that that doesn't exist right now uh, in terms <laughs> of, a, of a method. And so eventually we're going to be looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of fish and to be able to really hone in on this number.
0: Yeah, we did, um, I sailed with the Five Gyres Institute
1: uh, who do microplastic
0: research? I sailed from Bermuda to New York, and we would trawl. You know, same sort of
1: methodology and yeah it is it is the same yeah it's it's the it's the manta trawl on the surface we would call a new stonic, but top okay. top one meter, top one meter yeah yeah
0: um so you know we'd end up with a couple occasional trigger fish or you know small organisms and we'd cut open whatever you know unfortunately didn't survive the trawl um you know kind of a consequence of science but we'd cut them open and the number i think that we hit was around 20 to 30 percent had plastic in them um, so these are slightly larger cause we didn't have the ability to do the tiny stuff, but, um, you know, that's, that's enough that it's shocking and alarming to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially when you highlight the fact that, you know, we might not be seeing those other organisms that are, you know, passing
1: away. Sooner. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, just a couple other things about that is that, um, what we, what we found is that there was 126 times more plastics in these slicks versus just right next to, you know, a, hundred, a couple hundred yards away.
0: Wow! And is that because of that surface tension? Do you think that that attracts in yes. some way?
1: Yeah. So that's a, that's a great uh, question. So what I think's happening is obviously it's um, because the ocean current is coming together. It's bringing everything together in in that in that ambient area, um, but also yeah, it's sort of there's a stickiness. So uh, a lot of plastic are potentially sticking together either because of of all of the phytoplankton there or or what whatever, um, but yeah it's 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 aggregating and concentrating those plastics. And then we did compare the densities we we're finding in slicks compared to what was recently published about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and that's where we found uh, average concentrations were about eight times higher in these slicks than than what's in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Now to be fair, wow. to be fair, there might be small scale processes in the open ocean, in the garbage patch that's concentrating, like, you know, the concentration is not uniform in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch by any means. Sure. Nor does that mean that everywhere in West Hawaii is, or everywhere in Hawaii is eight times more. It's more just, I think it's it provides perspective of the amount of plastics that are where these larval fish are hanging out, you know, just to just to contextualize those numbers. Um, it's just a lot. And, and I think the other thing that's really important that we focused on in a, is that it's, you know, it's not just that they're all under five millimeters. It's, it's the fact that a lot of these plastics are less than a millimeter. So really small, you can't see these. You look out in the open ocean, you can't see them at all. Even walking on the beach, you can't really see these. These are grains, size of grains of sand, but larval fish are the, their food source is what they prefer is about one millimeter or less. So a vast majority of the plastics we're finding in these things happen to be the same size uh, as, as their prey. And what was even more interesting is that a lot of uh, zooplankton, which is this is what larval fish like to eat, a lot of the zooplankton that live on the upper ocean they're blue. They've adapted to basically try and um, as camouflage, right, so that they avoid predation. And a lot of the plastics that we found in the larval fish were all blue or translucent. So they were either looked blue in the ocean or they were actually blue dyed. Uh, and the other kind of fascinating thing is that they were all thread-like, like small little threads. Mm-hmm. And so the primary thing that larval fish feed on are copepods, and copepods are these, um, anyways, these small little animals that have antenna. And the antenna, we think maybe they're confusing the, the plastic threads for the antenna of a copepod. And, oh, and interesting. Maybe, so, I mean, those are all, we're just hypotheses at this point. We haven't really tested those right. things. But, um, th- you know, there's the the fact that 93 or Plus percent of the ingested plastics were blue or translucent and thread-like was, um, was pretty striking. Seems significant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one thing that I take away from speaking with you is all the nuance to this. And I think that's something, you know, when I speak to scientists, proper scientists, they'll always say, well, like, it depends. And, and this number is shocking, but here we need to put it in context. And that's so important but we live in an era where we want very clear yes or no. What do I do? What do we need to do? Like we, we as humans are so media saturated, our attention spans are shorter than ever. And we want the very clear, like this is the thing, (laughs) right? Like that's the thing. This is the bad thing. That's the good thing. There's a garbage patch and some kid's going to clean it up and great. And, you know, we kind of latch onto these very simple stories. So I have a couple questions. One is, you know, you find it hard to communicate the work you're doing how do you communicate the work you're doing do you get to and then in the broader spectrum of the world and you know you work for noah but you as an individual are an ocean lover and live here and all that so is it challenging knowing all that you know and being in this era where people need to understand so much more do those questions make sense
1: yeah uh, yeah (laughs) I I think I, you know, science communication is a, is a whole field in itself. And, and I, uh, funny enough, like, you know, going through graduate school, my master's and PhD, there was no real focus on communicating your science to the general public.
0: Just do the science.
1: Yeah. Just do the science and it'll get out, you know, so uh, you can probably judge me how well I'm communicating my science now. I feel like I just got deep into the weeds on it for a little bit. No Um, judgment. You're doing great. (laughs) Uh, a safe
0: space here on the One Ocean podcast. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think um, I think it's incredibly important, and I think it's I, I personally feel like it's a part of my job. So you know, talking about what are the implications of larval fish ingesting plastics. You know, do we? It's possible that plastics may sort of impact the entire food web. It's possible if plastics are, even if a small portion of those larval fish are dying, that that has real ramifications for adult fish populations. And so, bringing it back to us obviously adult fish populations are really important for just basic ecosystem function, but you know, whether it's livelihoods or for sustenance, we rely heavily on the marine environment and and fish. And so, you know, these, this has real world implications. And I, and so trying to, you know, package that and message that appropriately, uh, you know, is, is challenging for sure. Cause you know, it, there are a lot of things we don't know about it. Um, and so you, you, you definitely don't want to, oversell or, or overstate some of this, you know, especially as a scientist, I'm always going to be conservative in my statements about, um, the implications of the research, right. It's just, it's, it's part of our nature. It's, you know, it's, it's who we are. Um, so, but, but yeah, just translating to something that's that's relevant and people care about. And I think that's really important. And, and I, and I try and, and do my best in putting energy into that and improving so to speak, you know, um, what was the second part of your question? Oh, it's just... Oh, working for NOAA being a...
0: So, yeah. So, I was also asking about, um, you know, and hopefully, being in the kind of government space, but then personally, you know, having a passion for the ocean and you surf, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so like you, you have a vested personal interest and, um, you know, we're in this time and era when, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people have been ignoring science for a long time and, you know, all that. And so, is it challenging to be in that? that space where as a scientist you're like hey we need more research this is nuanced i don't want to overstate things here but maybe personally you're kind of like we got to do stuff you know let's go
1: oh yeah it's a it is it can be very conflicting um personally and internally because I, you know I, I think personally i have a lot of passion about a lot of these issues and i am you know i'm in the ocean all the time whether it's surfing or swimming or I mean there's a reason why I live on the North Shore of Oahu. I mean it's just it's not coincidence, you know. And and so these are things that I am really passionate and I care about. Uh, you know, at the same time my uh I've decided that the way that I approach that is very much from through a scientific lens and and trying to produce and focus on scientific research that is um that is scientifically robust but is societally relevant. So I really it's really important to me to be doing research that that matters for policymakers and management and and the general population. So in this case, the plastics research on larval fish, uh, you know, I, I was, I I hadn't expected how many people would be really interested in it. And, and especially, I you know, just as a side note, this, um, I was at a, I was at a meeting at the, uh, department of land, natural resources down, down, it's a, it's a state department. And, uh, this woman came up to me and said, Hey, you know, I, I just submitted some testimony for, for house bill 40, the, the plastics ban in Oahu. And I use your research as, as, part of that testimony. And that was like, just so validating. And so really, you know, it was out of all the things that have happened through this, through this work and getting it out. It was one of the most important things because it made me, you know, um, getting kind of emotional about it right now. It really, it, it just really hit home that like, this is work that matters to people. And that it is relevant to our the issues and the, and the concerns that we have and that we're facing today, and and like I said, that just is a is a is a really important aspect of um of what I do and why I do it and, and a main driver.
0: That's so cool, man. I mean, you should get emotional. That's a really proud <laughs> yeah, moment. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, to have your research be a part of that testimony to pass really progressive legislation to protect a place that you care about—that's really powerful.
1: Yeah. So you know, conducting societally relevant uh, research is, is, is pretty much all that I focus on. Fortunately, I have a job that allows me to do it. And, and bringing it back to your question about NOAA, you know, NOAA is in the business of trying to sustainably manage our marine resources. And so, you know, you need solid science to be able to do that. And, and so I feel pretty fortunate to work for an agency where that's a part of their mission, um, part of our mission. And, um, and, and so it's, it's provided me and afforded me lots of opportunities to, to feel like I'm doing um, meaningful science.
0: I think Noah is one of the greatest things that you know this country has or has produced as an agency and institution. Uh, I mean, we rely on that information in so many ways that we don't even think about. And I, I feel really fortunate. I recently got to go to the Pacific Marine Environment Laboratory for their five-year planning, their strategic planning session. They brought in all these different stakeholders, and I was like, I don't belong here. I'm not. A, I'm not smart enough to be at this table. I was sitting next to like NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory scientists, and all these really, really brilliant people, um, and I'm kind of sitting there going, what? What do i have to do here uh, but i was blown away by how important so much of the work that noah does across the board underpins so much of the research we have in our understanding of the world and um it really just hit home and uh, you know whether it's your local tide charts or you know fisheries management etc NOAA just does such, such incredible work so i i like just have this like incredible respect for the organization writ large um and i think it's great that the organization is you know enabling people like you to do this research and get out there and then talk about it too because i think that's the biggest thing is we need to be talking about these things we can't just do the research i i think i i hold the opinion that i get it that as a scientist, you have to be conservative and do the research and kind of be like, all right, this is just the research, but I think we're moving into an era where communicating that is more important than ever and communicating that in a way that breaks through, uh, particularly is is super important.
1: Yeah, no. And like I said, I, I actually, I think that, um, an older generation of scientists, um, would probably shy away and, and feel like, um speaking to the media or speaking to the public was is definitely not a part of their job and if anything it it might be i don't know showboating or or something perceived as a negative and and i think that the younger generation of scientists it's it's the opposite and i'm probably somewhere in the middle but um but you know i mean i feel like it's part of my job and i think it's really important cuz at the end of the day we are a i mean t- to to put it down to the most basic level we are a tax you know payer based funded entity and so the taxpayers deserve to know what we're doing and why we're doing it right so um, in addition to, like, I think we do really important uh, work on really emerging and, um, you know, global issues. And so getting that work out there is um, critical for making policy decisions or just allowing people to to really rally behind a particular cause that they care about. That, that maybe having some scientific um, basis or backing is, is helps support that cause. Uh, you know, I think historically science has been apolitical. Uh, and... And certainly, we as scientists are, as you know, in, in our occupation. And what I think is slightly different these days is that science has become very political, and uh, and it's sort of people maybe believe or don't in science. And I, and I, it seems the
0: use of the word "believe" relative to science is yeah, always funny. it's
1: directly conflicting. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so to put it bluntly, and um, and so I, that is a really uh, it's challenging because I I have a hard time. You know, say it's talking about climate change, which is, you know, there's never been an, a, a scientific issue in the history of, of society that more scientists have been on board with um, understanding that, you know, humans are directly contributing to uh, the fact that our climate is changing. Right. And so yet the public, there's never been such a discrepancy in, in public belief in, in such in in that you know, in a scientific finding or, or scientific evidence. And and I find those really striking um, comparisons or, or statements because they don't really, they, they seem to be at odds with each other, right? Um, so it, it, it there is some challenge in, in the way that we communicate and who we communicate to. And, and and just for the sake of there's now a belief system that seems to, um, I don't know, uh, get in the way of, of scientific findings or at least um, put turn a blind eye to to some really, prevalent and and pretty obvious scientific research.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I'll say, I don't think it's about the science. I think it's about the people who are, um, (laughs) you know, trying to work in the communication side that are working against your science that, you know, the science has been clear uh, for a long time. Um, and all the industries knew and everyone knew it's just that everyone covered it up. So, you know, I'd say keep doing the science and then hopefully there's more communication of it that helps influence us. Um, what else? What else is on the radar for you? What are you most excited about in the year ahead? What's coming up? What's what's new? And what are you stoked about in twenty twenty?
1: Uh, well, new,
0: any new uh, research or other projects? Or?
1: Yeah, I'm like personally, you know, I'm doing some traveling. I'm, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's any it, surf trips. It, it uh, I do have a surf trip. Do you
0: take surf trips when you live here? I mean, or do you do you go just like snowboarding or something? Because you have the best waves in the world right here.
1: No, that's that's true, but um, there are still plenty of there's you know, traveling and, and there is something really, um, I don't know, exploratory and romantic about traveling for surfing still. Of course. So, you know, yes, I still take some surf trips. Nice. Um, you know, it is, it's, this is going to be sound kind of strange, but while it is a difficult time, I think for society to be, to be, um, you know, within the context of climate change, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a giant threat to, marine biodiversity and human health and, and all sorts of aspects of, of our planet, including us, right? So it's, it, there, it, is, um, it is difficult, like thinking about humanity within the context of climate change. But as a scientist, things are changing in ways that we've never seen before. And so there are lots of things to study. To try and really understand the impacts of climate change, and so um, to say it's exciting sounds like I'm excited that the climate is changing, and that's not the case, obviously. But I think that there's a lot of research, there's a lot of doors, um, and, and a lot of needs that, and a lot of questions we need to ask and answer to fully understand how, in, you know, in, in case of in my case, how core reefs are, are impacted by climate change, and um, and there's also uh, there's lots of emerging technologies being applied to. Uh, coral reef ecosystems, and and really um, trying to understand those changes that that just haven't been there before. And so, for example, we're able to really use uh, remote sensing techniques, so looking at either data collected from aircraft or satellites, in ways to be able to see underwater and just see individual coral heads now uh, that we couldn't do just a couple of years ago. And the reason why that's important for people is that if you know, we've only been able to study underwater um ecosystems underwater since the really the advent of scuba and scuba diving has really only been around since the 70s and 80s for people like me for scientists um so we don't really have just a rich history in understanding quarry ecology as say people who've been walking around forests for hundreds of years trying to understand you know differences whether it's vertical changes in in the tree line or whatever and uh so having these emerging technologies really allows us to identify areas that are maybe more resilient or resistant to a changing climate. And that once we find those places or find specific species or whatever, we can then, you know, hand that over to policymakers and decisions to say, hey, these areas are really important. These are these is your reserve for future coral populations or these somehow this area seemed to to really weather and survive the last coral bleaching event. Like we need to carve out this area and we need to protect it, or we need to monitor, or pay attention, and and it's these again these emerging technologies that allows us to do that on a way that we can never do before. So, um, so I, I am really excited to be to be getting involved in that type of research.
0: It's an, ex- it's an exciting time for science.
1: Yeah, it is absolutely. Like yeah. I said, it's like you're.
0: It's a weird thing to. <laughs> it is
1: a weird thing to say, but I will say that I'm I'm generally an optimist, you know, and both. Uh, you know, um, both is just you know is my personal nature but but, even as a scientist, I, I do I look out on a seascape and i and I can see the fact that there are still live corals, there are still fish, there is still lots of healthy aspects of different ecosystems that that are worth putting our energy to understanding and understanding why they're still there or understanding you know, like I said, the things that make them resistant to you know large marine heat waves uh, and and then I think that that will really provide us information to find those areas and protect them so uh while coral reefs and other ecosystems i think will will be changing as as the climate changes there's no question about that um i think what they look like 20 30 40 years from now will will be very much dependent on what we do as a society in the next decade uh but you know i'm optimistic that especially given what's been happening around the world in terms of climate change activism and and so on and so forth i think that um, I do believe that policymakers have the ability to, to make the, the, the policies change that is needed and, and that we can potentially really at least um, not head down to, to this like apocalyptic path that, that feels like we could be and that ecosystems will, will adapt and respond to that. Um, I don't want to be overly optimistic here. We are fundamentally, um, climate change is the single greatest threat to our planet. And our well-being, with, without a doubt, and and I say that from as a scientist. Um, but again, the impacts are 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 I think f- not fully realized, and I think that um, as we move down this road, uh, there is there is um, cause and reason for hope and optimism that that these ecosystems will persist.
0: What other technologies are you using, or what other ways are you engaging like citizens to to be a part of um, all this work that you're doing?
1: Yeah. So um, this summer. Uh, around Hawaii, we experienced a a really large marine heat wave. So ocean temperatures were an upwards of three, four degrees Fahrenheit above what we would typically expect.
0: And and just writ large, the ocean has absorbed like 93% of the heat, the excess heat in the atmosphere, right?
1: Right. And, but, you know, so in general, ocean temperatures across the globe are increasing, but um, there are, you know, there's other factors that will, superimpose or, or sort of be on top of general ocean warming and so these these, these are seasonal cycles um and then in this case we had uh, what we would call large marine heat wave for much of the northeast pacific um so from basically north of hawaii over across um you know california and so and, and northward up to alaska the ocean was was much much warmer than it typically is and the physics behind that is super complicated but basically winds died for an extended period of time. There's very little wind. And so when there's no wind, the ocean surface heats up um, to to put it most simplistically. And so around that affected conditions around here. And like I said, things were, you know, two, three, four degrees Fahrenheit above what we would typically expect. And when it gets that warm, uh, corals kind of stress out and it induces something called coral bleaching. And so coral bleaching is the breakdown of that symbiotic relationship we talked about earlier. And so because, because algae provides the color for corals, once that algae leaves, corals are just white. They're just calcium carbonate. So it looks like you've poured a bleach all over the coral head. And, um, and for the first time, uh, we partnered, NOAA partnered with the state, as well as, um, uh, funny enough, uh, ASU, Arizona State University. Uh, they have some emerging technologies where they're using satellite data to try and track bleaching in real time, which has never been done before. So wow. we could basically get a map every week um, for the entire state of Hawaii as corals are paling. And, but the satellites... And that's
0: because the satellites can see but beneath the surface of the ocean? Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's not a predictive thing. They're actually they're seeing They're actually it. seeing. Wow. So
1: we ha- we have satellite data that can look at ocean temperature, which is which is a predictor for coral bleaching but it's not a it's not a one-to-one by any means um there's lots of areas where it's super hot and corals aren't bleaching and vice versa um so this is the first time uh in in that partnership that we were able to use satellites and track it through time however we weren't really sure um you know the satellites were detecting changes and detecting this whitening of corals but we weren't sure how what those changes were and how white they were for example so we, at the same time, um, we developed something called the coral tracker, HawaiiCoral.org, And it allowed people, anybody underwater to basically on their smartphone say, yes, I, I've, I saw bleaching here or here or here. And you can even, there was even a, um, there was three different severities, you know, one being just barely pale and, you know, basically mild, medium and, and extreme. And, uh, and it, hundreds of people, um, scientists, citizens, you know, surfers, uh, ended up Documenting on HawaiiGlobal.org, which is that's also the first time that's ever really been done. And while there's been some, you know, there's um, there's a couple of the other local organizations that have used citizen science. Uh, they provided, they required some training or a little bit more information. This was just, hey, if you were underwater and you saw something, can you just put this on your phone and log it? And uh, and so what it allowed us to do was help calibrate what the satellites were seeing with what. Uh, was being reported by oh, okay. by local community members. So not only was that I think a really important way by people could um, could actually look underwater and feel like they're contributing something. And actually, a lot of surfers in particular don't really put their head underwater very often, right? Uh, so I, I think that it allowed citizens to get involved and to contribute to something. And and importantly, it was actually scientifically meaningful. This wasn't just an exercise to say, "Hey, go out and right. log this for us." It was it really allowed us to. We, for example, we got a couple of, um, a couple of reports that seemed like there was some, some really important, um, bleaching going on in certain areas. And so what we did as scientists would take those reports and then go and follow up and and help validate them. And a lot of them were spot on. So people, I think people are really good at, you know, white is not a natural color underwater. Yeah. You just don't see too many things that are white. So, um, you know, and you can see coral bleaching from above, you know, just even, you know, paddling, right. Uh so I think a lot of people contributed and it was actually really critical for both from an outreach perspective but also from again like sort of a scientific validation story as well. That's great and is it still live today? Yeah, still live today and those um satellite maps that I mentioned, uh you can actually see them. So you can uh you can see where coral bleaching is is was greatest around the state and then you can actually compare that with where people um documented coral bleaching as well. Awesome, we can link to that in the show notes as well. Yep, absolutely. I guess especially since, since I've been focusing on the plastics work, I feel like the question always comes up, well, what can we do? And same with the climate change. And yeah, it, it does, especially climate change, it feels like this just behemoth. It just feels like this insurmountable like hill to climb. And, and what do we do? What can we do? And, and I think that as cheesy as it sounds, you know, the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis, absolutely, when sum total over our life and when sum total over the entire human population make a giant difference. And uh, so what we do does matter. And I I feel like, you know, whether you're talking about your climate footprint, you know, making different decisions on, on your diet, for example, or the number of flights you take or whatever, all that adds up and it matters. Same to be the products that you use and whether you're getting you know, your vegetables from your local CSA or somewhere where it's wrapped three times in plastic, you know, that those decisions, you know, small and subtle on, on the day-to-day do when integrated over time matter a lot. And so I think people should take ownership of those decisions and live deliberately and know that the things that they do matter.
0: Super well said. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Dr. Jameson Gove, thanks for being here.
1: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Reece.
0: and thanks for all the work that you do for the ocean. Happy to do it. I bet you never thought you'd hear two grown men talk about how cute baby swordfish are. And if you don't believe us, then I implore you to go check the show notes for links to the imagery from his research. Seriously, baby swordfish, super cute. Okay, thanks to Jamie for sitting down with us and for all the important research you do. And thanks to Noah, where Jamie works. Seriously, Noah supplies all of us with so much valuable information. If you meet someone from Noah, then you need to thank them for their service in science. That's all we've got for this week. Uh, Until next time, we'll see you then.